Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. My name is Suzanne Spradley, and I'm here with my colleague, Chase Cannon. We are both attorneys with the NFP Benefits Compliance uh, Department, and we are here to break down the ACA's repeal and replace efforts. Um, Republicans have been very busy trying to repeal and replace the ACA, and we, we certainly are hearing that even this week they'll try to put forth a bill for vote. Um, but why, And so we may be recording this again very shortly uh, to address uh, the bill that's actually uh, voted upon. But until then, we thought it would be important to focus on a topic that's been included in just about every GOP plan, which is the expansion of HSA coverage. So, Chase, let's, let's take a, a look at HSAs generally. Just talk to us about what an HSA is. Right. So an HSA, that stands for a health savings account. And it's important to focus on that last word, account. It really basically is an individual bank or trust account that an individual can contribute to. They can do it on a tax-free basis and from which an, an individual can pay medically related expenses. And those distributions from the account to pay medical expenses are also tax-free. So we get that question a lot. Is, it a, is an HSA an employer plan? Uh, do I have to comply with ERISA with respect to the HSA? That kind of question. And really, the HSA is, itself is the individual account. It's my account. It's the employee's account. It's not the employer's account. Um, so that's uh, one of the basics. To make it even better, since we're all about sweet tax advantages, individuals can actually invest their HSA money and any increase through the investments, that is also tax-free. So that's what we call the trifecta. It's the triple rainbow of tax savings. <laughs> um, I was in Boston last week. We got to, I got to take in a Red Sox-Yankees game there at Fenway. So anyone that watches baseball knows the rarity of a triple play. It just doesn't come around very often that you get three in a row. Uh, but an HSA offers triple tax savings, and it's available to anyone who wants it as long as they meet a few basic requirements. So, so walk us through some of those requirements. Right. So those, the first one is that you have to have qualifying high deductible health plan or HDHP coverage. What does that mean? Qualifying. That means that the coverage meets certain standards that the IRS has put out there with respect to the plan's deductible and out-of-pocket maximums. So there's a minimum deductible that has to be attached to that plan. There's a maximum out-of-pocket amount that has to be attached to that plan, and I have to be enrolled in that plan. So that's having qualifying HDHP coverage. In addition, the individual cannot have what is called impermissible coverage. That's defined very broadly as any coverage that pays for an expense prior to that IRS statutory minimum deductible uh, before that's met by the individual. So give us some examples of what impermissible coverage would be. Right. So best example is a general purpose HRA or health FSA. And to explain how that would work, if I go to the doctor and, and I incur an expense there and my HRA reimburses my expense or my copayment, well, that's what we call first dollar coverage. It's anything that pays before the statutory deductible is met. That would disqualify me from establishing or contributing to an HSA. So uh, general purpose HRA health FSA is impermissible coverage. That includes that coverage through a spouse. So that often trips up our clients and individuals. I'm covered through my spouse's employer, 
the spouse's employer has an HRA and it covers my spouse's whole family, including me, that can disqualify me from HSA eligibility. Other types of impermissible coverage include Medicare, TRICARE, um, Indian coverage uh, through Indian services, that can, that can impact it as well. Yeah, we certainly get a lot of questions on Medicare and HSAs, so that, that really does seem to be a big issue yes. and, and uh, one that we hear about a lot. Right. Lots of ways you can get tripped up with Medicare. Um, because it's, when you enroll in Medicare, sometimes the coverage is retroactive. That's a question we see a bit. How do I account for those months that I thought I was HSA eligible? And I enrolled in Medicare a few months later, and it retros back to my first date of eligibility. That's a, that can be one example of a problem for impermissible coverage. And it's automatically enrolled for Medicare Part A if Correct. you have Social Security, whereas B, you actually have to to make an effort to enroll and right. sign up. And so that does, uh, if they're automatically enrolled in, in Medicare Part A, then they are ineligible to make contributions. Right. So it's important to understand some of those complexities, especially when we get down the road here a few minutes talking about Republican repeal and replace and how to deal with some of these complexities that are out there currently. Okay. So we've got this trifecta of, of tax benefit. Why do we not see them utilized more? It's a great question. Um, I think one primary drawback has been just general awareness. So lots of people have not known about these, or maybe they've heard about it, but it just has never touched their life, and so they haven't thought about them as an as a an option. One example I'll use is my brother. He's an attorney as well, and um, he has worked for big law firms for a long time, and and worked for a regulatory agency for a short time, and now he's landed a new job as in-house counsel. Congratulations to him. But he's, he was calling me to tell me about this. He said, hey, they have a, a high deductible plan there and an HSA. Can you tell me more about that? So here we have you know, a pretty educated young fella who just never explored what it means to have an HSA before. So that can describe sort of one issue of why um, these haven't been as popular. They're just not well known, or, or maybe they're well known, but they're not well understood. And so you haven't had a lot of uh, a lot of usage on them in the past. Um, There's definitely an education component. Right. Yeah. It takes a little bit more to understand them. So, but usage is on the rise. Um, that's, there's a couple of numbers that we'll look at that talk about that. But before we talk about the rise, let's talk about the origin. Uh, where did HSAs come from? This was, uh, they come from a law that was enacted when George W. Bush was uh, our president. So back in the early t- 2000s, he, he signed a law called the MMA, that's M as in mother, Medicare Prescription Drug Improvement and Modernization Act of 2003. So when he enacted that, the the hope was from him and from the government was, uh, or from Congress, that these HSAs are a good deal, all Americans should consider it. This is coming from George W's quotes on this. Um, The idea is it will be similar to an IRA, where you can put the money, it's not spent, it stays in the account, it gains interest tax-free, it gives people an incentive to live more healthy because they want to see their HSA accounts grow. So you can see all these policy reasons for throwing these HSAs into the world and, and hoping that people will use them. So that was then, like any new law or idea, it takes a little time to catch on. And uh, by 2010, uh, there was higher enrollment in these qualifying high-deductible health plans, these HSA-eligible plans, um, up to 10 million by 2010. 
then we're looking at a time period between 2010 and 2015 where we have a lot of growth here. Enrollment in HSA eligible plans nearly doubled from 10 million to almost 20 million. So in addition to that, uh, a 2016 survey reported that 28% of all employers that offer health benefits offer an high, a high deductible plan with either an HRA or an HSA. And that number is up from 4% in 2005 and 15% in 2010. So again, you see almost a doubling from 2010 to 2015. And then for larger employees, employers, uh, those with 200 or more workers, that number goes up to 51%. So you see larger employers, perhaps because they're getting hit with, they're seeing the huge costs with um, associated with their plans, looking for ways to save money a little bit. Let's offer a qualifying high deductible health plan. We'll pull in this HSA and uh, maybe we can cut some costs there. So it's really catching on over the last, um, you know, that 2010 to 2015 time period. We see that. And since then, it's gone up even more. Which is interesting. That's the ACA, post-ACA time period. So we'll talk about that. Um, so they've been around now for close to 15 years. That sounds like their, their interest is starting to rise. Take us back to 2010 when the ACA was enacted. What changes did the ACA make to HSAs? Right. It's an interesting comparison. The ACA was enacted in 2010, and that's when we started to see this explosion. But the ACA itself did not make any substantial changes to HSAs or any of those rules that we just discussed about impermissible coverage or requirements relating to the high deductible plan. Uh, but it's done a few things that impact them um, either directly or indirectly. First, the ACA prohibits reimbursements from an HSA or other spending arrangement for over-the-counter drugs. We talked about this earlier. That's one restriction uh, that impacted more than just HSAs, but it's part of the ACA and definitely had an impact on HSAs there. Uh, the second impact relates to a couple of ACA requirements. Uh, the first is the Form W-2 reporting requirement. Again, that's, help, that's meant to help employees understand the actual cost of premiums for their employer-provided coverage. So now on our W-2, we get that. There's a dollar amount saying this is what you and the employer together paid for your coverage. That was something that we didn't understand as employees probably as well as we could have before the ACA. So maybe a little bit of increased awareness of what things are costing. And then you also have the SBC requirement. That's an ACA requirement that's meant to give employees a better idea of coverage and benefits under the plan itself, and that includes cost sharing. So those two, those two ACA requirements, they give employees a bit more information so that maybe they're a little bit better informed to make healthcare decisions. And those may also help employees be more comfortable with moving to an HSA compatible plan. So you couple that with the tax benefits and maybe you see the ACA impacts actually helping employees become better prepared to get into an HSA. So what, let's look back now to, we talked about there being an increase in, in HSA desire or impact from 2010 forward. What are other changes or what other effects of health reform could have indirectly impacted that? Yeah, that's an interesting point, Suzanne. And so another indirect impact is the kind, it's a combination of rising health care costs, which is a little bit debatable under health care reform, and employer cost shifting. So we've seen this trend as costs rise, and we're talking premium costs for the most part. Um, as that rises, employers are looking for cheaper options um, to deliver their health care to their employees. And so one option is to have a plan with a higher deductible, 
Now that's going to decrease the premium, uh, but it will increase cost sharing. It requires additional cost sharing from employees. So employers may or may not help employees with that increased cost sharing, but the general idea is that more and more employees are having to burden the cost associated with the plan. As employees burden that cost, they get more skin in the game and their awareness of costs rise, which in turn increases the awareness of, of different strategies to account for those additional costs. So for example, 15 years ago, we go to the doctor under our employer's very rich PPO plan. We don't pay a lot of copay under there. We just give $10 or whatever it was to the doctor. You don't ask any questions about how much it actually costs. You just know insurance is going to pick it up. Um, with an HSA, now you're sliding your HSA card to pay for the visit and you're responsible for the full amount of that visit up to the statutory minimum deductible, of course. But you're a bit more aware of what's being charged and for what. And so there's a bit of that paradigm shift with the cost sharing and the increased skin in the game, but you start caring about what, thi what things cost. You know, and we've probably seen some of that cost shifting also as employers were trying to prepare for the Cadillac tax um, being implemented. We certainly saw that employers were trying to get their total costs down, and so we saw some shifting occurring with that. Right. Um, so we've talked about at the beginning how there are some Republican bill, bills that were affecting HSAs. And so walk us through what some of those bills look like and, and how they affected HSAs. Yeah, so there's the three major changes. I've kind of broken them into three major buckets that would that, how these changes would help expand the uses of, usage of HSAs. So the first is Republicans want to loosen some of the rules relating to HSA distributions. So let's make it easier to get money out of those accounts. Um, so that would include, first of all, eliminating that ACA rule we just talked about that prohibits reimbursements for over-the-counter drugs. So um, now we can go to the, to the uh, pharmacy and get, uh, use our HSA cards to buy NyQuil or bandages or some of these things that have been prohibited without a prescription. Uh, so it makes it a little bit easier. It also includes eliminating some more of the more tedious rules that are in place currently. For example, right now, if I enroll in an HSA qualifying high deductible plan, but I don't establish my HSA for several months, and this happens a lot, um, I can't reimburse myself for expenses incurred prior to that HSA establishment date. So the replacement idea is to cover that gap. It's to allow reimbursements back to the date I enrolled in the high deductible plan, not the HSA establishment date. So again, that's the, the, the idea is loosen some of those restrictions on HSA disbursements. We do get those questions all the time about employees that have failed to set up an HSA timely. Right. So that does that happens in reality quite a bit. Right. They think that, they, that the employer is doing it on their behalf or they think that they don't have any responsibility to sign it up or, yeah, there's a lot of different ways it can come up for sure. So that's the first uh, major change under the Republican plan. The second is that Republicans want to increase the contribution limits to an HSA. So right now for 2017, I can contribute up to $3,400 if I have single only coverage and 6750 if I have family coverage. The uh, replacement plan would increase those amounts significantly. That would not only allow additional tax savings for contributions, but there's also discussion of trying to align the contribution uh, limits with the statutory out-of-pocket maximums. So right now, those out-of-pocket maximums are $6,550 for self-only coverage and $13,100 for family coverage. 
So you can see a pretty big gap there on what I can contribute to my HSA versus what I could potentially be paying out of pocket. Why not make it more simple and have the contribution maximums match those out-of-pocket maximums? So that way, even though I have more responsibility for paying out-of-pocket, at least I can do that on a tax-advantaged basis. Um, and obviously, it helps reduce administrative burden when you have fewer numbers to remember and communicate to employees if you're an employer. I know that would be welcomed in my family of quadruplets, and I'm sure in your family of four. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> we utilize our HSAs a fair amount. <laughs> So one other thing on the contributions, the Republican plan also allows spouses to make catch-up contributions to the same HSA account. So again, simplification, the rules now are a little bit more complicated and convoluted. Let's make it a little bit easier to contribute and a little bit more to contribute to those accounts. The third uh, major change, Republicans want to loosen some of those rules relating to impermissible coverage. So right now, if I have a general purpose FSA, through a spouse, I can't contribute to an HSA, so maybe some loosening on those rules. Uh, likewise, if I have Medicare or TRICARE coverage, I can't contribute to an HSA. So one thing the Republican, I does, uh, the Republican idea does there is maybe allow someone who has Medicare Part A coverage only, they haven't enrolled in Part B, like you mentioned earlier, um, let's let them have HSA eligib eligibility still. Um, so again, the idea is make it easier, Let's make it more simple and allow more individuals to qualify and contribute more to HSAs. So I certainly think that last part with the Medicare interaction with HSAs would be have bipartisan support. But uh, in, in other cases with this expansion of HSAs, there is not bipartisan support. So can you, what, why would someone not be supportive of expanding the use of HSAs. Right. It sounds like we've talked about all the great things, right? Trifecta, tax savings. We have loosening of rules. I mean, this just it all sounds great for the individual account user. Um, but there are some out there that will argue that this idea of contributing more only benefits higher earners. And so if we're enacting a law that's really only going to help someone who has a lot of extra income that can actually pull from that income and put it in their HSA, Again, that's generally uh, maybe those that are more educated, those with higher paid positions. Um, why are we enacting a law that can only help them? Um, lower earners don't have enough in their paycheck um, a lot of times to be able to take advantage of an HSA. So that's sort of the policy argument against it is let's figure out a way to get to be more fair if we're looking at um, how to get more care to more individuals. Let's do it in a way that's not just going to mostly benefit higher earners. And I guess in, 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 in opposition to that, I would say uh, that employers can certainly contribute to an HSA. So That's where right. an individual has a low income and they can't afford it, employers could, could kick that amount in. Right. And we've talked a lot today about the individual side of this, but employers obviously get pulled in by sponsoring a, the qualifying high deductible health plans so that employees can contribute to their HSAs and employer contributions to HSAs. That's a big part of this for sure. All right. Well, thank you, Chase. I know that HSAs will be a part of any Republican bill. If they do get to that point and put it to the floor, we will see an expansion of HSAs. I know on the retirement side, they're a bit concerned that it will cut into some retirement dollars that are currently going towards 401ks. But mm -hmm. otherwise, I think the expansion of HSAs is certainly a great benefit for all. So thank you again, Chase, for taking tackling that subject. And as we like to say, that's a wrap. That's a wrap. Talk to you guys next time.